Every glass of wine tells a story. These stories reveal hidden histories, flavors, and passions. And sometimes they unravel our darkest desires. In Wine Enthusiast's newest podcast, Vinfamous, journalist Ashley Smith dissects the underbelly of the wine world. We hear from the people who know what it means when the product of love and care becomes the source of greed, arson, and even murder. Each episode takes listeners into the mysterious and historic world of winemaking and the crimes that have since become infamous. This podcast pairs well with wine lovers, history nerds, and crime junkies alike. So grab a glass of your favorite wine and follow the podcast to join them as they delve into the twists and turns behind the all-time most shocking wine crimes. Follow Vinfamous on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and be sure to follow the show so you never miss a scandal. New episodes drop every other Wednesday. Modern. 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 We're prepping for a voyage. Modern. The force of an old-fashioned equals whiskey mass times bitters acceleration. Why don't you make that a double? Modern bar cart. What's shaking, cocktail fans? Welcome to episode 258 of the Modern Bar Cart Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Koslick. Thanks for joining me for another interview episode where we track down the best and brightest minds in the spirits and cocktail world so that we can share their secrets with you. Now, normally we interview bartenders, distillers, authors, and other folks who are deeply entrenched and invested in the drinks industry. But longtime listeners will know that I also enjoy taking the occasional field trip to the land of academia. And that is precisely where we find ourselves this episode. For this ingredient-focused conversation, I'm joined by Dr. Bjorn Hamburger and Abby Bryson of the Michigan State University Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. They're engaged in various types of scientific research designed to probe the evolutionary and genetic nuances of plants in the mint family, also known as Lamiaceae. Now, I feel like I owe you a bit of an explanation here. It's not like we haven't looked at mint before. Back in episode 185, for example, I did a whole audio essay on the history and craft of the mint julep. We talked about it extensively also in our episode 142 Fernet duet with Nick Fisher of Cocktail Chemistry, and it's come up numerous times in our featured cocktails. But here's the thing. Compared to citrus or some of the other esoteric flavors we've tapped scientists to discuss, like horseradish or capsaicin or umami, mint is much more versatile. It shows up in boozy, sweet cocktails like the julep, sour cocktails like the Southside, tiki drinks like the Mai Tai, and herbal spirits like chartreuse, fernet, genipe, and absinthe. Mint, like the other plants in the Lamiaceae family, has a way of getting the attention of human sensory systems. So I thought, what better way to understand the bewitching properties of this plant than to seek out those who know it in a deeper, more essential way than you or I do. But before we start talking about terpenes, essential oils, and the ethnobotanical uses of plants in the mint family, let's take a pause so that you can make yourself a drink. This episode's featured cocktail is the Grasshopper. To make it, you'll need one ounce or 30 mLs of green creme de menthe, one ounce or 30 mLs of white slash clear creme de cacao, and one ounce of heavy cream or half and half. Combine these ingredients in a cocktail shaker with ice, give them a good hard shake until the contents are well blended and the outside of the tins starts to frost over, then strain into a stemmed cocktail glass Garnish with a mint sprig, or if you're feeling sassy, some finely grated chocolate shavings, and enjoy. Now, I've only had like one of these suckers in my life. Clearly, it skews a little bit sweet and heavy from the cream, which is not generally the kind of cocktail I prefer, but it's kind of cool. Imagine my surprise as I researched this cocktail and learned that it's another member of the famous New Orleans cocktails cohort. According to many sources, it was invented in the French Quarter at an establishment called Tujigues. According to their website, quote, Located at 823 Decatur, America's oldest stand-up bar can also be credited with the Grasshopper Cocktail. 
invented by Philip Guichet in 1918. The cocktail includes white and green creme de menthe, white and dark creme de cacao, heavy whipping cream, and brandy. It was created for a cocktail competition in New York City where it came in second place. It has remained a winner at Tujigu's Bar ever since. End quote. Now, if you're paying attention, you notice that brandy is mentioned in the Tujigu's list of ingredients, but it does not appear in many traditional grasshopper recipes. This is likely for two main reasons. One, if you give New Orleanians an excuse to put brandy in anything, they'll do it. And two, the grasshopper can be sort of a choose your own adventure drink with both low and high octane variants. For a good recipe involving brandy, make what Simon Difford of Difford's Guide refers to as the Gustings Grasshopper, named after legendary and still active New Orleans barman Paul Gustings. Literally, he's still active. He made me a drink last year at Tales of the Cocktail. This formulation is equal parts, just like the one I just described, but it steps back the measures from a full ounce, or 30 ml, to about 5 6 of an ounce, or 25 mls, to accommodate the addition of that brandy. So, now that you've got Two takes on a timeless New Orleans classic to whip up next time you're in the mood for a dessert cocktail. Let's turn our attention back to the interview. In this deep dive on the biochemistry and genetics of mint with Abby Bryson and Dr. Bjorn Hamburger, some of the topics we discuss include why mint and other members of the Lamiaceae family have been able to evolve in such a diverse array of ecological niches, infusing their flavors and health benefits into the ethnobotanical cultures of people around the world. The reason why mint smells even more amazing when you activate it, and what these chemical signals might indicate in the universal language of small molecules. We also cover an important class of compounds called terpenes, which have become all the rage in certain beverage and cannabis communities recently, but that might also hold the key to certain mint health benefits. Then we explore Abby's fascinating research using computational genetics to identify important biosynthetic gene clusters in mint species. And we conclude by peering into what the future might hold for this area of study, including the use of yeast to naturally synthesize flavors and medicines without harming these beautiful plants in the wild. I do have to put a bit of a disclaimer here that absolutely none of the content in this episode should be construed as medical or health advice. No, chomping on a fistful of mint won't replace your daily multivitamin, and while Bjorn is technically a doctor, he's not that kind of doctor. And the content in this episode is meant purely for informational purposes. That said, I hope you enjoy learning about the highly nuanced signaling mechanisms in plants like mint. These signals are part of a language that's going on all around us, and we humans have harnessed them in so many fun and stimulating ways in the world of spirits and cocktails. But the story of mint? It's far older than the story of humans and our silly, fancy drinks, and it involves forces so deep that I was called to locate a couple of experts to guide us on our journey. So with that, please enjoy this fascinating, mentholated conversation with Abby Bryson and Bjorn Hamburger of the Michigan State University Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. Bjorn, Abby, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Eric, thanks for having us. Yes. So um, before we jump in and talk all about Mint, about some of the exciting research uh, that is being conducted at your lab, it'd be great if uh, you could just introduce yourself to our listeners. Uh, just explain basically high-level overview. Who are you and what do you do, starting perhaps with uh, Bjorn? All right. I'm an associate professor here at MSU in biochemistry and molecular biology. And our team is really excited about medicinal plants and how plants make that huge chemical diversity we are so excited about. Um, originally trained as a chemist, I realized that plants will certainly beat us any time. And now we work with plants. <laughs> Wonderful. Abby. Yeah, so I'm one of Bjorn's uh, team members. My name is Abby. I'm a fourth year PhD student here at Michigan State University. I work a little bit more on the genomic side of Bjorn's team. Um, so I am currently studying the, the genomic structure of the medicinal plants in the mint family. Interesting. Yeah, so to give 
our listeners a little bit of context here. They're, the, our longtime listeners will not be surprised that we're speaking with academics. We've, we've uh, worked with uh, researchers in the past when studying capsaicin in the context of the Bloody Mary. Uh, we've also worked with some university historians. And so what happened was I had an idea that mint was a something in the cocktail world that shows up all over the place and in very different contexts. And so I thought, well, what if, what if we dove a little deeper? And so the first thing I did, of course, was go to the Google machine. I typed in mint expert, mint research, and lo and behold, we had some actually pretty recent uh, research that was, that was being published um, through, uh, through your lab, and, and that's how I came to you. And so I guess, Abby, I, I have a question that I want to throw your way and just see how you feel about it. I imagine after, you know, you're you're a fourth year PhD student, you're deep into this research. Can you give us sort of a before and after snapshot of like how you felt about mint and these plants going into this research and now how you feel about them and what you like the the transformation in terms of your understanding and, and your context for these plants now that you've spent all this time in the genome, literally? Sure, of course. Um, so before I started my PhD, I had a, I, I think I would describe myself as just unaware. Um, I, I generally like gardening and a lot of the plants that we'll talk about today in the mint family are culinary herbs. So they're rosemary and basil and thyme and oregano, and they grow often in people's gardens. So I had a few of those plants uh, growing up and in my college house, um, but I really wouldn't have thought anything more of it. Uh, obviously, I've spent a lot of time now thinking about them. So I'm much more aware when I'm walking around uh, either the MSU gardens or just like out in nature, which of these plants are within this family. I'm able to more easily recognize them. And I'm just a lot more aware of how, how awesome they are <laughs> and um, like what they can do. And um, yeah, so I'm just a lot more aware. Yeah, we've, we've had conversations about plants in the past, and it's it's actually like your answer reminds me a lot of uh, my friend Colleen, who's literally an apothecary. And so the way that you just described like your awe for these plants is kind of the same way that she described them. And it's interesting to me that she comes to it from a very much an embodied sort of out in the world relationship with these plants. And you're coming to that same place via this very different, very literally microscopic level research and understanding of, of the, of the, like the genes and peptides within these, these plants. So I, I think it's cool that we can come to a very similar place from very different directions. But uh, you mentioned a few different plants and um, Bjorn or Abby, I'm wondering if you might, before we get into the nuts and bolts of your research, be able to give us a working definition of what we mean by the mint family, uh, because I, it, it strikes me that this could be an important detail. So the mint family is uh, more of a, a common name. The, the Latin name for the family is Lamiaceae. We call it the mint family because it has uh, probably the most popular is peppermint, spearmint. So it has mints in it. But if I say the mint family, I'm not just talking about peppermint and spearmint. As I said before, there's a lot of other culinary herbs and a lot more plants that aren't culinary herbs within the Lamiaceae family. So it's one of the larger plant families. It has around 7,000 species in it. Um, some of them are more well known and some of them are really not studied and not known to most people, most people like in the world popularly. Yeah. So one of the things that I pulled out of the article that I located in my, in that fateful Google search that brought us all together was that you know, obviously we like mint because there's this property, right? Uh, when I go to a really nice cocktail bar here in Washington, D.C., and I order a cocktail that involves mint, specifically in the garnish, one of the things that the bartender will do will be to... It, Depends. Depends on the level of bar you're at. If if they're if you're at a really high end cocktail bar, they will activate the mint by you know literally smacking it. 
it, it more of a mid-level place, that's that's exactly what they call it. They call it smacking. And then if you're in maybe a divier bar, they might call it spanking the mints, which is sufficiently naughty for their purposes. But either way, what's achieved there is the essential oils and some of these, um, I guess, volatile compounds are activated. And that contributes to our experience of the overall aroma and flavor of this cocktail. And in the article that I came across, it seems like there might be with certain compounds that we can perceive, perhaps terpenes is one that I'll throw out into the clouds for for you to to grasp onto there. It seems like there might be some evolutionary purposes or or functions. Maybe we don't want to ascribe purpose, but evolutionary functions to some of these compounds. So I'm wondering, um, Bjorn, this was something that, that you kind of clarified when we were emailing back and forth. So I'm wondering if you might latch onto that and maybe talk a little bit about terpenes and, and how evolution in this plant group is something that's interesting for the work that you do. Mm, yes. So for one, terpenes are the most ancient group of what we call specialized metabolites on the planet. They are chemically super diverse and for the plants that make them they are really critical for adaptation and interaction with the environment now that's not really something that is of of importance for humans but humans recognize them exactly for what you pick them as flavors and fragrances but their roles go much much further than that and you earlier hinted on some uh, medicinal properties so humans recognize those plants for tens of thousands of years for exactly these properties. Now, when we look at where plants grow, they inhabit uh, such diverse ecological niches, which means that, yes, when they adapt, they change their chemical profile. And this is exactly what we observe in the mint family, which is one of those plant families that is really super rich in terpenoids. Mm. One of the most interesting conversations that I had with someone about the topic of yeast yielded this potential way of, of looking at the relationship between humans and yeast in that, you know, this distiller I was speaking with almost flipped the relationship on its head. We're these big humans and we think we have control over the world. He said, well, really... Uh, you know, yeast have sort of domesticated us for their purposes and, and ma- they make all these wonderful flavors so that we will, you know, continue to help them propagate. And it seems like, you know, the the diversity and almost like the adaptability within the mint family might lend itself to kind of a, a similar finding in that it just strikes me that, you know, thinking about my friend Colleen, who's, you know, this apothecary and goes out foraging in the Blue Ridge Mountains just a couple hours west of me right now. When she looks at plants, the aroma and these 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 terpenes, these essential oils that can be activated when we interact with the plant, it's, it's a signal. And it seems like plants can use these things to signal. Like, what, what are some of the other functions that these terpenoids accomplish either for the plants themselves or for the perhaps for the ecological niches that they inhabit oh absolutely and here the image is uh, much more complex interaction with the environment means not only responses to heat or wounding and you called it earlier smacking I'll, i'll come back to that in a second but these are as you say communication signals that plants can use to attract pollinators plants can use this to attract insects that may help them fend off some other insects that chew on them. So those interactions can be far more complex. They are also exuded into the soil as a signaling molecule. They can be used to signal to other plants, hey, uh, there's something going on here. I'm, I'm being chewed on. So this, this is far more complex. Now, you were talking about that, that smacking and Critically, when you take a look at uh, members of the mint family under the microscope or even with the bare eye, you can see that they are covered often in some hairy fuzz. And this hairy fuzz, these are called trichomes. These are cellular factories or glands on the leaf surface, and they are dedicated for production and for sequestration of these terpenoids. So when you smack the leaves, you break off those trichomes 
And this is how you release these flavors and fragrances. So it totally makes sense that you treat these leaves before you put them into your drink. That's fascinating because what you're describing, when I think about flavor and aroma perception is that our olfactory receptors and to a slightly different extent, our taste buds operate almost as a lock and key mechanism. And so when you say that these trichomes are cellular factories for the production and sequestration of terpenoids, it almost seems like the mint plant and we need to be careful about ascribing purpose to a plant, but it seems like the mint plant is almost designed to have a bunch of those keys literally sticking off of it saying like, Hey, if you, you know, if you interact with these little things that I'm making very available to you on the surface of the, the leaf, then these keys will be released and then they will be available to the lock mechanisms on your olfactory or, you know, taste perceptors. And I think that's so, it's so wonderful that we have that, like almost it's, it strikes me as an affordance of like, you know, certain plants have different affordances than others. And when we're talking about the mint family, it seems like this affordance of these, uh, trichomes is is a major thing. So I'm really glad that you were able to, A, give me some technical language to understand what's going on there, and B, you know, really identify the wide variety of reasons why these plants might have these affordances, right? There's the heat, the wounding, the pollinators, um, you know, going into the soil, and, and it, it, it's very fascinating to me. I hope we might be able to now actually dig into, Abby, some of the research that you're conducting. Because we've got this mint family. Uh, I'm sure that in the different species, they have slightly different affordances and different, um, I'm guessing there are different terpenoids being produced or different variants, perhaps. I One, one uh, example I can think of is lemon balm versus mint. You know, lemon balm seems to be in that mint family, has a slightly different taste and, and smell than, than mint. And so I'm wondering if you could, A, maybe touch on some of those differences and B, I don't know if these can be answered in the same breath, but take us into some of that exciting research that, that you've been conducting. Sure. So we've talked a little bit about terpenes already, and I just want to clarify that um, terpenes are a class of plant natural products. So they're just a chemical that the plants make. And as Bjorn said, the plant uses them for a different kind of signaling and communication. But they're just one type out of many that a plant uses. And they're called terpenes because they're all made out of the same base molecule. The ones that we have been talking about that you can smell are typically the monoterpenes. So they're the smallest, they're the most volatile. The ones in the soil are often diterpenes. They're a little bit heavier, um, so they can stay in the soil a little bit better. So the taste of different mint species, different Lamiaceae species, is due in part to some of these terpenes, often the monoterpenes and some of the smaller ones. So there's a different combination of these for each type of plant. And a lot of the terpenes we don't even know about. So I think it's estimated right now we have an awareness of around 65,000 terpenes. So that's a ton. Obviously, we can't name all of them. We don't know a ton about all of them, but there are a few that come up and that are researched a bit more. So, for example, in peppermint, the most well-known one is menthol. That's where you get that kind of cooling effect. It also has some limonene and pinene, which have kind of that, that citrusy limonene. And pinene has that little bit more of a, of an herbaceous kind of pine scent. And those you may have also heard in other products such as cannabis. Those are common ones that are brought up in cannabis as well. So the flavor profile has a lot to do with those types of terpenes that are in those leaves and in those trichomes, as Bjorn was saying. Mm, mm, that's interesting. And so... We have, just to, just to back out in summers, we have this entire kind of landscape of terpenes. Some of them are larger, 
Some of them are smaller. The smaller ones, when you refer to volatility, that means they're kind of given off and we can, you know, kind of take them in with our senses and that's how we interact with them. So we're actually interacting, you know, when I think of an oil, for example, like an essential oil, oil to me sounds like a big compound, but really the essential oils and the terpenes that we can perceive are actually the smaller ones. Um, and it, Reminds me of another term that I came up against in your research, which is something called a, a BGC or a biosynthetic gene cluster. So since we're talking about big and small compounds, that just kind of struck me as like biosynthetic gene cluster. This might be something interesting to, to kind of think about now. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up because that is definitely where my work is. It's more in the genomic area. So terpenes are compounds. And these chemicals are made by enzymes in the plants and enzymes are encoded for in the DNA. And a biosynthetic gene cluster is the order of those genes within the genome. So we're taking a couple steps back down to a different, different level here. But basically, there are multiple enzymes that are needed to make these compounds. And biosynthetic gene clusters is something where most or potentially all of these genes needed for the pathway are very close to each other within the genome. So not too long ago, we used to think, we being scientists in general, used to think that genomes were essentially random, that genes were kind of scattered all around and not really in any particular order. But the better our technologies with genome sequencing are getting, the more contiguous these assemblies can be, which means the more lengthy the genome assemblies can be, the better quality. The more that we're realizing that genes really aren't random and there is some kind of structure. And this is a fairly new, fa fairly new idea. Um, so, you know, not everything is completely known, but this, this paper that you are talking about that Bjorn and I and a whole other team have been working on is, um, one of these studies that is looking at these biosynthetic gene clusters of one terpenoid in, in particular. And this BGC biosynthetic gene cluster is present in many of the Lamiaceae, the mint family species. And these species are very highly diverged from each other, meaning that their most common ancestor was very far in the past. So they have been evolving away from each other or differently from each other in different areas for a very long time, but they have retained this BGC. And this could be interpreted that this BGC is beneficial for survival for the plant or that it's uh, actively being used in some way. There's, there could be some evolutionary pressure to retain this BGC. Hmm. One of the things that comes to my mind as I'm listening to you explain this is that, you know, we, we often think of evolution, we, I, I refer to folks who don't specialize as you do, but I, I think of evolution as animals, right? We go back to Darwin and the finches, but it's fascinating and, and a little bit trippy, but it makes complete sense to think of plants evolving in the same way, like the, 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 the common ancestor. And, and it's, you know, when I think of animals, I think of tails or vestigial organs that might, you know, be phased out or flippers turn into hands when we, when we move on to land. But here, what you're referring to is literally there's, there's something that creates these, some of, some of these things that we taste and experience in the glass. And that thing seems to be directly tied to this BCG that is, you know, playing this, it seems essential, evolutionary role for these plants. I mean, is that roughly what, what you're talking about in summary? Um, yeah, I do want to clarify that this particular BGC that we were studying is not uh, one of those that you would want to taste. <laughs> um, it, it is a terpene, it. but it is not one of those nice smelling ones. Um, it is used in different types of medicine, and we can talk about those if you want. But it, it to be clear, it's not really uh, the ones that you want in the drink when you when you smack the the trichomes. Got it. Um, but yes, and I want to clarify too that um, the, the scale, the evolutionary scale that we're talking about here, um, because humans uh, or like the first human type ancestors, I believe uh, were thought to be coming around 2 million years ago. 
And these, this Lamiaceae family was thought to have diverged around 60 or 70 million years ago. So we're talking about a big difference in the evolutionary time period. And plants have been around or, you know, the plant predecessors have been around a lot longer than, than animals and the animal predecessors. So they are in some ways, uh, very complex in ways that animals are not. I'm not saying that they're more complex because evolution is not a, it's not a linear process, but um, they have been around a long, long time. Eric, and you made, you made an interesting comparison here. You talked about uh, the evolution of tails, the evolution of other features that we nowadays recognize as, as important uh, for speciation of animals. And you compared that to this gene cluster. Uh, your comparison is actually really right on. You see, uh, animals have the capacity to, to walk, which means you attack them, they can run away. Now, plants can't do that. Plants have evolved different ways of defending themselves. And this is exactly the chemistry that you were referring to. So, perfect analogy. This episode is brought to you by Near Country Provisions. And I thought that since it's a newish year, I'd share some thoughts on how switching to local farm-raised meat and line-caught seafood from right here in the Mid-Atlantic is a really solid New Year's resolution. First off, this is one of the few resolutions that'll be easy to stick to. That's because every month Near Country delivers right to your door and they give you a ton of customization options so that you can really personalize what's in your delivery. I have literally never seen a delivery service with such good customization and add-on options. Full stop. Second, when you see the quality of this meat, from the luxuriously dark tones of their grass-fed beef to the insane marbling on some of the cuts of their pasture-raised pork, you'll know immediately that you've got something special. And that carries through on the plate with nourishing, hearty food for the whole family. I'm a new dad, and my daughter loves sampling my food when we cook up a meal using Near Country Provisions proteins. And as if that wasn't enough, you can feel good knowing that Near Country sources their food from farmers that use sustainable and regenerative agricultural practices that create healthy animals and a healthy environment in which they can roam. A great example are their eggs, which are sourced from Warrington, Virginia, where their farm partner adheres to the highest standards of pasture-raising chickens, which means healthier birds and rich, dark yolks when you crack them open in the pan. Head over to nearcountry.com and enter the code BARCART, that's B-A-R-C-A-R-T, all one word, when you sign up for your subscription to receive two free pounds of bacon or ground beef in your first delivery. Resolve to improve the quality of the protein in your diet and vote with your wallet to support ethical, sustainable local agriculture here in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. Now back to the show. Yeah, well, it's... I'm I'm wondering if this might be this is perhaps a slight tangent but in the world of plant research how should we think about communication the the, the extent to which plants can communicate because I think the term communication can be a little tricky to define um, and, and I know that like every once in a while, every once in a while, you'll see an article come up about the, the, the wood wide web and like, Ooh, are trees communicating or a mycelial, you know, with fungus. So are these, are, are these fungus playing this role whereby plants can communicate with each other? Those seem slightly different than what we're talking about, but this notion of communication, or maybe if we step back like a half step, we can just call it signaling, um, is, is interesting. So for folks like myself who are just lay observers of this really interesting conversation going on within academia, do you have any other advice for how we should think about signaling or communication in the plant world? I mean, you wanna take that? Or I, I can quickly comment on that. There is uh, one universal language that pretty much all organisms on the planet understand, and these are small molecules. Um, plants use them for communication, as I said, with pollinators and other organisms such as microbes or fungi. And uh, humans have learned to recognize those. So I think that when we talk about signaling or communication, small molecule language is probably something that is very 
widespread and that all organisms can understand. Yeah. And what you just mentioned, you know, you, you, I, I may have stumbled onto an apt analogy, but, but you have perhaps inadvertently also stumbled onto one in my domain now, because when we go into a great cocktail bar, one of the things that is always expertly manipulated in the best, most enjoyable, most memorable instances is the atmosphere. And aroma is something that is very much tied to that atmosphere. You know, yes, there's the lighting, there's the music, there's, you know, the the, the service level, but there's also the aroma. And that's, you know, a huge part of, you know, the, the cocktail service and the drink design as well. So I, so I think it's, it's great that we happened upon this metaphor of these small molecules being a universal language because that seems to be where humans and mint converge and can actually, you know, that's where, that's where the, the rubber of these small molecules hits the road of our sensory experiences that I'm interested in. But getting back to BCGs, Abby, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the upshot of this research because... You know, one of the things that's really popular these days in the drink space is no and low ABV cocktails. And when people are designing these cocktails with the absence of this molecule ethanol that has these certain, you know, effects on our our consciousness, we're looking to, in many cases, the people who are doing the best job are actually looking to replace those effects of ethanol with other types of compounds. Sometimes it's caffeine. Sometimes it's other types of adaptogens. In many cases, it's actually the strategic deployment of terpenes that we can sense. And so I know that you said that the the BCG is a type of terpenoid that's maybe not the one that we would want to taste, but can, can you talk about the upshot of this research as it might apply to health and wellness? Yeah. So the BGC research is maybe not necessarily one that would be in a cocktail because again it is just the order of the genes not that these genes are existing versus not existing but more that this is a that the plant can in theory control this very uh very efficiently so instead of having genes all over the genome and 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 needing to make them and turn them on and do everything that's all spread out across the genome if it's all right there then that's much more efficient for the plant. So whatever these BGCs are making, whether they're, as you were saying, caffeine, terpenes, uh, hallucinogens, whatever that is, it is more efficient for the plant. And that's one of the that's one of the things that is currently being researched, but it's one theory that we have why BGCs could be something that are around today. So what does the research look like? Like how, how did you actually come to this discovery uh, of the, I, I suppose the non-randomness of the genome? And, and I mean, where are you, are you under a microscope? Like literally what, what are you, what are the tools and techniques that you're using to uh, create these, these findings, maybe not create them, but locate them? Sure. Um, so you can see trichomes under a microscope. You cannot see DNA in a way that you can really look into it. You could see chromosomes if they are condensed, but you can't really see, you can't not see the sequence of DNA. So all of that is done computationally. Um, and mm. I have a wonderful co-author, Emily Lanier. She's also on this paper. She uh, was doing a lot of the biochemistry work, but I also, uh, like research is not, you're never on an island. You always stand on the shoulders of other giants. So um, there's a lot of work done before me but basically, I am looking into genomes that are already published, mostly, and a, a few of our a collaborator of ours has also published a few more of these genomes that we're looking into. And I, I use, uh, yeah, bioinformatics, computational methods to search through this massive amount of data and picking out where these genes are, if they are next to each other and what could be a pathway, and then going like zooming in um, metaphorically a little bit more and doing some biochemical work. And that would be uh, Emily and Bjorn's specialty, uh, but figuring out what these genes are making, what enzymes are making, what these enzymes are doing. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. I'm, it's, it's sort of a nesting doll structure, right? And I had to, I had to like quickly scramble and write it down so that I could remember it. So it seems like the, the, we have the overall genome, 
where which we used to think was random, and now we are beginning to come around to the fact that perhaps it's not as random as we thought it was. Within the genome are these uh, biosynthetic gene clusters, and those clusters it, are creating the enzymes, and those enzymes are creating the terpenoids. Yes. Did I get that stacking correct? Yes, yes. Okay. So, so genes make enzymes, enzymes make molecules, generally. Got it. Got it. Got it. You know, as as you were just talking about, you know, the non-randomness of it, uh, I, I was thinking about uh, a quote from the article that I read. And uh, Bjorn, this is, I believe this was from you, It uh, referring to this analogy of a recipe, you know, when, and we're t here, we're talking about the plants in the mint family and these biosynthetic gene clusters, talking about them as a recipe that everyone has a copy of and changes to suit their requirements, right? In reference to the different ecological niches that these plants inhabit. And it, it strikes me that, you know, in the, this, this is to me, the delight of the mint family, because, you know, they each have this slightly different flavor and aroma, but really it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like these differences are, can be tr not only traced back to the environmental niches that they inhabit, but they can also sort of be traced back and attributed to these pathways that you're studying, Abby. Is, is, that, is that a correct way of thinking about this? Yeah, absolutely. These pathways make the compounds and the compounds are beneficial in some niches, as you were saying. So they would be evolu they would be an evolutionary advantage to have some of these compounds which are made by the, the cluster BGCs. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Uh, this is this is sort of a mind expanding conversation for me because it has been a long time since I've been in a university lab. And certainly as a humanities major, I was not allowed to uh, anywhere near the equipment in the in the in the science buildings. So this is this is kind of a, a huge trip for me to think about what 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 are we missing? Is there any aspect of this research that I haven't I guess had the, enough perspective to ask you about, or perhaps another way to go about this would be to ask what's next, because I know that at the end of any good science paper, we always talk about areas for future, future research. So uh, is there anything that I'm missing or what's next? I, not, not that you're missing, but I would like to bring to attention that a lot of these plants uh, in the Lamiaceae family are used in traditional medicines all around the world. Um, and there is a lot of knowledge, there's a huge knowledge base in groups of people who have lived in these places and have been using these plants as medicine for hundreds or thousands of years. And that's, that's a knowledge base that like we as like lab Western scientists don't have. And so that is one one way that we can kind of expand our own horizons and, and be able to focus our research on things that have been working for thousands of years is to um, respectfully tap into that knowledge and to have conversations with indigenous peoples and better understand why they're using the plants that they're using and stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting. Let's, let's imagine a world in which IRB institutional review boards were incredibly kind and you know there were you know we, we could pretty much get any type of research approved what would a collaboration between someone like you or someone who's doing the type of work that you do in your lab in collaboration with somebody who could go and do some of that on the ground work. What, what does that, what would like a weird multidisciplinary approach to what you were just describing look like if we didn't have to worry about institutional review boards? That's a big question. Um, I'm not sure that I'm <laughs> fully qualified to answer it, but um, the way that people are kind of gaining some of that local knowledge is through uh, a branch of science that I'm learning more about. It's called ethno botany or ethnobotanical studies. And it's basically surveys of people in um, more rural areas or, or maybe where they still practice more of the traditional medicines. And, and scientists will walk around and be like, 
what, what plants do you use and how do you use them and what do they do to walk around to all these indigenous peoples? And, and a lot of the times there are like language barriers and a lot of stuff that I wouldn't even have thought about, but those are published. Um, they're not incredibly common, um, but there are some studies about, especially a lot of the plants in the Lamiaceae family are often represented in these studies. A lot of, a lot of them are used in these traditional medicines. So I'm trying to learn more about that in that way, but I can use those. It is a step removed, but I can, I can look into those studies and see which are the plants that are most beneficial that people all across the world are using in very different, they haven't talked to each other. They're independently using these as medicines. And then I can go in as more of a genomicist, a biochemist and um, figure out the, the biochemistry side of things of why, why they're, why they are working, why they are used as medicine. And so, Jorn, do you have that stuff to add to that? Oh, absolutely, because Eric, you are asking a, a highly relevant question here. And a lot of the research that we are nowadays doing is inspired by indigenous knowledge. A lot of the plans that we are working with have been described in old texts or even more modern discoveries in the 60s and 70s as being used by indigenous people for a lot of different purposes. And, and this has, in the old days, triggered the interest of researchers who then brought the plants with them to study what the active constituents are. But now we need to be really careful when we talk about this knowledge because we are not biopirates. If we now want to use modern knowledge of indigenous people, we need to establish a working relationship. We need to make sure that those people on the ground, that, that we give back to them whatever our findings are. So this dates back to the 70s when the Biodiversity Convention was first established, saying that it is not only unethical, but all those countries that ratify this kind of biodiversity law, um, that these are not allowed to go out into, let's say, the Amazon forest, grab a plant based on indigenous knowledge, bring it home, make lots of profit on it. So I think this is something that's yeah. really important to acknowledge. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I I didn't know if that was going to be a dud of a question, but I, I love the reference to the ethnobotany. I mean, you know, we've we've gestured back to to Darwin and to these people who uh, you know went out and first described for for Western minds some of these some of these plants and animals, and it seems like we are as as much as far as we can go in the direction of computational genomics it seems like we are still at the very least grounded by some of the ethnobotanical realities in this field and to me i mean that makes me really happy because i'm here interested in mint because of how it looks and how it smells and how it makes my drink taste right and some of those properties are the same ones that caused humans to notice these plants in the first place. So, so it, it actually makes me really happy that we're, we're not able to completely take these plants out of the context in which they evolved. In fact, that seems to be crucially important. So I'm, I'm really glad that we went down that little rabbit hole. But before we wrap up here, I wanted to maybe get your thoughts on some of your favorite plants in the Lamiaceae family, because of course, you know, we mentioned peppermint, spearmint, lemon balm, I mentioned earlier, uh, but it seems like there's a lot more. So for folks who might be interested in either the ethnobotany of these plants or just, you know, different compounds and, and different, different looks at uh, mint than the little package that they overpay for at the grocery store. What are, what are some of the other plants that are really fun and exciting about in this plant family? So unfortunately, a lot of medicinal plants don't taste very good. <laughs> so they're not always something that you would want to add to your drink. I think the ones that perhaps taste the best to us are the ones that are well known and they are well known specifically because they taste good to us. Uh, but I know that Bjorn has an example of ones that we perhaps don't know of yet here. 
Right, yeah, and, and traveling Asia, I stumbled upon one that I didn't know before. It's called uh, Perilla, or it is made into drinks. It, there is a Japanese flavor, it's called Shizu, and you can buy Shizu-flavored plum wine, which is absolutely outstanding uh, for, its, for its fragrance. I, I bet you you know this probably much better than I did. I stumbled upon it by, by accident and thought, wow, this is awesome, outstanding, and again, one of those really characteristic profiles in in aromatics. Mm, yes, shiso is, I would say, certainly trending upwards now. People are starting to starting to use it a little bit more in drinks. Uh, the Japanese influence on spirits and cocktails is also something that's very exciting these days. So uh, we are, especially more so on the West Coast, um, where they have some perhaps slightly in the Pacific Northwest, they have some biomes that are a little bit more similar to places in, in Japan and, and Asia where these uh, plants uh, originate. They've, they've managed to get a little bit more shiso into the, uh, into the American market. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's very exciting. I believe, isn't it also very brightly green? Is it used as also coloring in, mm -hmm. in certain foods? Yes. And the yeah. leaves are very leafy. <laughs> if you, allow that um that comparison um they're thicker they're wider there's more biomass to it uh you can also put it into salads mm. it works really well uh together with sushi and other dishes that come out of that region yeah well this has been a whole lot of fun for me uh i, I do want to give you both just one more opportunity in case there's anything that i'm overlooking here because i do feel like this was just at the edge of my comfort zone in terms of being able to to lead this conversation i'm glad that you glad that you redirected where necessary and uh, i just want to give you both just uh, an opportunity for i suppose the last word here because I will go off. I will send this file out to my audio editor. We'll slap on some cocktail recipes and we'll we'll talk a little bit about mint in the cocktail context, but I want to make sure that we're actually giving this scientific context and the evolutionary context the the attention that it deserves. So is there anything else that you might want our listeners to know either about your research or about this this amazing plant family before we sign off here? You earlier asked about the concept of the research, how this is being done. And of course, we recognize the mint family for their flavors. Now, if you are interested in finding out how those flavors emerge, you can go in and search for those genes. Now, what Abby said is, should you have a genome at hand, you can drive the discovery of these pathways in reverse. You have the genes, and then you can find out what kind of chemistry they make without the prior knowledge, without the, the prior need really to learn about the chemistry. Now, why are we interested in learning about those chemistries? And, and I just want to take two, three sentences talking ab about the reason behind that. Uh, we are excited about learning how plants make these chemistries because this would allow us to use these pathways in heterologous hosts. And you earlier mentioned yeast. Yeast is one of those hosts where you can put these pathways in and then you can use yeast to make these chemistries. Now, we call this branch of, of science, we call this synthetic biology because it's sort of at the intersection between chemistry, between biology, between bioinformatics and everything that Abby has talked about. So I think that synthetic biology is a key concept because then we don't have to go out into the wild. We don't have to forage plants that might be at the edge of extinction. We can use this knowledge in these modern times and biotechnology to produce these compounds, these, these molecules. Mm, that's fascinating. So you're, so just to make sure I understand what you're saying, you're saying that we can almost propagate these compounds using something like a yeast or, or for example, and that way we don't need to just rely on what's growing in nature because obviously we, you know, we're, living on a planet that's undergoing some very extreme, you know, climatic changes. And obviously that is going to put some, some strain on some of these ecological niches in which these plants are found. And so it seems to me that this is, you know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, perhaps something that we brought up was good timing. It seems like this is great timing then for us to have these computational approaches like Abby, the one that you're using so that we can go in 
and grab this knowledge and then hopefully using sort of the bioinformatics and some of these uh, more emerging practices, create them without having to steal them or be, like you mentioned earlier, bio pirates. Yeah. And um, another side of that is that we can also avoid using synthetic measures to make these compounds. So a lot of like pharmaceuticals and stuff will make these compounds synthetically. Um, And that can often lead to a lot of waste products. These reactions are often pretty low in efficiency. It's, It's expensive. It can make some toxic compounds. It's not very good. So if we can use yeast or other plants or whatever other system to create the molecules that plants are making within themselves that are helpful to humans, then we can increase the efficiency, uh, especially with like yeast, the, like <laughs> the, the, the stuff that you would get coming off of that, like it wouldn't be toxic. It would be something that you can use for other, other means. You can use yeast as like feedstock or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of other applications that something like that. It's a lot less toxic. It can be more efficient. So it also helps in the, in the fully synthetic route to be using um, the machinery of the plant or of the yeast. Yeah. Wow. Well, it seems like I, I was, I was worried that uh, I was worried that we in uh, examining these processes at a very, I guess, zoomed in genomic level, we might be at risk for um, getting a little bit too far from things that people can relate to, but it seems like all of these implications that you're discussing have both timely and very real impacts on the lives of people like me who will go out after this, go to the grocery store and, you know, pick up a thing of mint. And so I'm, I'm super excited to have been able to have this conversation with you. Uh, For those who are interested in your work or in the types of things that we've been discussing, uh, are there any resources or ways to connect with you or the lab that you work at digitally um, so that if anybody wanted to follow up and read through some of these articles, of course, I'm gonna link to the one that I found in the show notes, but what's the best way to connect either with the the lab at MSU or with, with you individually in the digital space? Go ahead, Bjorn. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we are, of course, on Twitter. This is hashtag Bjorn Hamburger. Of course, uh, interested folks can always reach us by email, and this is easily found through the MSU website. Just Google MSU and Bjorn Hamburger. We are happy to take folks for tours through the greenhouse, which is packed with Mint members, and we are always happy to give tours of the lab to folks excited about uh, plants and their applications. Well, that is excellent. I can't, I can't think of a better way to wrap this up than with an invitation to, to tour the actual greenhouses and, and see the labs where this amazing work is completed. So uh, Bjorn, Abby, thank you for humoring me, an outsider, uh, and, and uh, making sure that I fully understand and grasp the implications and the details of the work that you do. And most importantly, thanks for being my guests here on the Modern Bar Cart podcast. Eric, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. It's been really nice chatting. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here. And by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. You can always reach us by emailing podcast at modernbarcart.com if you're looking for cocktail or bartending advice, or if you're a pro who would like to pull up a mic and be interviewed for all to hear. 
Also, definitely follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Bar Cart for cocktail porn, recipes, and entertaining tips. And keep an eye out for new product releases and special offers, which are happening all the time. We love our listeners, and we really enjoy giving you exclusive discounts and sneak peeks at our latest and greatest cocktail projects. This episode may be over, but for you, the mixological fun and adventures are just beginning. So remember, folks, drink responsibly and experiment boldly. This episode was made possible with editing and sound design by Samantha Reed, Minty Insights, courtesy of Abby Bryson and Bjorn Hamburger, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2023.